Oh, hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. Thanks for your patience. It's always a quick little transition going from Majority Report to uh, TNS, but thanks for joining us today. I am Nomi Key Konst, and oh, wow, it turns out that the Electoral College does actually have a purpose. Now Mitch McConnell and his band of Trump sycophants say the election is over and Biden will be president. Interesting. That was quite remarkable last night to see Joe Biden defending the American electoral system against his defeated opponent's smears. Let's play that clip. If anyone didn't know before, they know now. What beats deep in the hearts of the American people is this, democracy. The right to be heard, to have your vote counted, to choose leaders of this nation to govern ourselves. In America, politicians don't take power. People grant power to them. The flame of democracy was lit in this nation a long time ago. And we now know nothing, not even a pandemic or an abuse of power, can extinguish that flame. Flame of democracy was lit a long time ago. Well, it is true that Trump has done a lot of damage undermining the faith in elections. But as a progressive, hang on, as a New York progressive, I also have to say that there were some really big chickens coming home to roost all over Joe Biden. I will just let that image linger for a moment, okay? Our electoral system has been busted for decades. In New York, technically, the two political parties run elections, but really the Dems do, as the two parties still do in several other states. Election jobs, I don't know if you guys know this, are party patronage jobs. And so you get what you'd expect, hacks and no-shows and people who raise money and trade in favors. The party machines set up the elections to make it harder for non-machine candidates like grassroots progressives to break through. They control most primaries too, of course. Keep that in mind when you are threatening to primary some neoliberal establishment Democrat. What are your state's primary laws? The result of all this is disillusioned and uninspired voters and low turnout. Look at New York, Democratic state, very low turnout. Voters who don't believe their votes will matter or even be counted are less likely to turn out. Voters who can't see a difference between Tweedle Dems and Tweedle even dumber Republicans. So turnout falls, which helps the machine stay in power. power. Even in this, elec- this, this extraordinary election year, with more votes cast than ever before, some 80 million eligible people did not vote. A third of that electorate just stayed away. And this was one of our best election days ever. Trump's effort to overturn the election, of course, was a disgrace. It was even worse that Mitch McConnell and the rest of his sorry power, power party abetted Trump in his coup attempt. But now that it's done, Let's not just go with, oh, that was Trump. Trump was riding a wave of cynicism about our elections and politics that Democrats and Republicans have worked together for years to create. One of those true bipartisan efforts. Well, enough is enough. There is a strong movement in this country to take the management of elections away from parties and their partisan appointees. So there's actual oversight to put independent professionals in charge, professionals trained and experienced in running elections that are fair and independent, professionals who understand that elections belong to the public, not to political parties, private political parties, might I add. That's the big idea here. This is supposed to be the people's government of, by, and for, but we keep losing track. And we have no problem, by the way, doing this in other countries, overseeing elections in other countries, but we have no oversight here. So I, for one, am not going to cheer on uh, the, the cheers, join the cheers of Bill Barr resigning in the final month. The attorney general is the people's lawyer, not the president's lawyer. And now at the very last minute, Barr remembers that? We, we need to keep reminding everyone that this government belongs to us. And a good place to start is to make sure that elections are for the people, that we don't forget this moment. This is a critical, important moment. And we're just gonna brush it aside. Elections are for the people. Remember, not for the parties. We have a lot to do in 2021. We have major existential crises facing us. But if we don't have the infrastructure in place, if we don't have the foundation in place, then the movement that supported 
the fascist or fascist tendencies of Donald Trump will only grow. One thing that we need to need on our to-do list is to support the movement for fair election oversight in which it is easy to vote and easy to count the votes. Our tolerance for party hack run elections opened this window for Trump to attack everything. He grew up in it. He maneuvered his way through New York machine politics, democratic machine politics. That's actually what he knew. His attacks were lies, but that doesn't mean there aren't real problems with our elections. And now is the time to fix that. So we have a lot of work to do, but I just wanted to make sure that you guys remembered who Bill Barr was, is, what he represented, and the movement that has been built to undermine our elections. And that is a two-party movement that created that problem. We need independent oversight, not just to erase our democratic infrastructure. All right, speaking of democratic infrastructure, we have a great show today. We have Aaron Bastanian, Aaron Bastanian from Navarro Media. Uh, he is going to be discussing the state of Brexit, where what's happening, and what's happening with the Labour Party right now, and with Corbyn. Uh, that's straight from the UK. Aaron Bastani is going to be up next. And then later, we have Napoleon de Legend and Akila Lacey on from The Intercept to talk about today's news. There is a lot of it. Stick around. We'll be right back with Aaron Bastani. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Aaron Bastani is the author of Fully Automated Luxury Com- Communism. He's, of course, a journalist, and he's the co-founder of Navarro Media. If you guys in the U.S. do not know about Navarro Media, they just hit 100K subscribers on YouTube. It is brilliant. I really saw them up close when I covered the U.K., um, the Labor Party uh, conference in 2017, I think. And you guys threw this insane live event. It was so much fun. Uh, I mean, really inspired me. You guys uh, have done amazing work on the left in the UK, even though you're in the state of what's going on. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Oh, you're on mute. That's the, you know. Am I okay now, Namiki? You sound great. You look great. I was, I was, I was, uh, I was just so taken aback by your wonderful introduction. I forgot to unmute myself. That's very (laughs) kind of you. Uh, it's very, very kind of you. But I, I have to say 100,000 YouTube subscribers by American standards is very small fry. But thank you. By British standards, it's very good. <laughs> I mean, by my standards, it's great because we're a new show. So new listen, show. the algorithm is not helping anybody right now. So uh, I think it's it's a big deal. So definitely go go to Navarro Media, go subscribe. They're doing incredible work. Um, so Aaron, let, before we get to like the state of disarray and, and Brexit, I'm very curious what's happening in the Labour Party right now, uh, given people have been kicked out. Like, it's just, I can't keep track of everything. Yeah, so much. Um, so for your audience, I don't know how familiar they are with British politics. Jeremy Corbyn was the leader from September 2015 until earlier this year. Uh, it was a roller coaster. He was a left leader, obviously, and did very well in 2017, surprised people, and then did very badly last year. A bunch of reasons, I think, principally Brexit. Uh, but we don't need to go into that necessarily. He's then replaced earlier this year by somebody called Keir Starmer, who very much lent into the same policies as Jeremy Corbyn. His pitch was basically, I will be Jeremy Corbyn, but I will be more credible to the establishment, which will allow me to nullify political attacks, which was a very impressive sell. So he did very well. He doesn't historically come from the left, but you know he, he did stuff in the 80s, the early 90s, that people kind of believed it. I'm a bit of a skeptic, so I didn't, but I can see why people did. He becomes leader, and it's been kind of much for muchness because, of course, there's been COVID, and his polling was was okay. Labour weren't, you know, tearing up trees, which you could argue they should be because, of course, Britain and its response to COVID has been appalling, you know, like the United States. But he'd been doing okay. And then we have the EHRC report come out a few months ago, which is our national body with regards to human rights. And it, it's critical of Labour in regards to anti-Semitism. It's nowhere near as bad as many people have said, but it's, it's certainly not good. It says two people acted unlawfully, both of whom, by the way, I should add, had been expelled by the by publication of this report. Can, uh, can, I, I, can I interview just for one second? Where does this historically come from? Because this has been brought up over and over as if the Labour Party has always had these anti-Semitic roots, as if Boris Johnson's, you know, right wing Mm. doesn't as well. But but I'm very curious. Uh, That's just, it's just nonsense. Um, I I don't personally buy that. 
what's interesting in terms of recent history, so uh, British Jews voted for the Conservative Party in 2015 uh, to an extraordinary extent, like 65, 35, despite the fact that Miliband was Jewish and he would have been, he would have been the second Jewish prime minister, the first since Benjamin Disraeli, although Disraeli converted. And the reason was, was in 2014, he made quite a controversial decision to effectively recognise a potential state of Palestine. And at the time, that led to uh, people leaving the party, uh, very critical response in, in parts of the media. Some of the high-profile figures who've attacked Corbyn, who've left the Labour Party because of Corbyn, they actually said, I'm leaving the Labour Party because of Ed Miliband. So th- there's clearly, I'm not saying it's the entire, entire issue, but there's a major part of this was Labour's positioning on foreign policy, in particular Israel-Palestine. That was a major part of it. And British Jews generally had left the Labour Party, we, we can discuss why, but before Jeremy Corbyn had become leader. In fact, the difference between 2015 and Ed Miliband and 2017, in terms of the, the British Jewish vote, who they're breaking for, it's not that different. Uh, but th- this whole discourse goes on sort of steroids after 2017. I would personally say that the issue was greatly exaggerated by elements of the media. By the way, if you say that, it can get you suspended from the Labour Party. Uh, really? And I, 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 yeah, Just it, it can. That. Yes, if you say that. Um, that's essentially what Jeremy Corbyn's been suspended for. But for instance, if I told you that on a national radio station, somebody said that literally somebody said, a journalist said that Jeremy Corbyn would effectively open up, open up Auschwitz a gentleman called Simon Heffer, a journalist, said that. I mean, clearly, whatever your thoughts on Jeremy Corbyn, that's, that's clearly an exaggeration. Uh, all the opinion polling in terms of how the public viewed the anti-Semitism problem within Labour, you know, the, interpre- the, the interpretation of this was that, like, 30% of the party had been disciplined for anti-Semitism. In fact, it was like 0.03% of the party. I can't remember the exact figures, but you can understand why somebody might make that point that you can say on the one hand, there have been issues here, partly because it's a party that's not built for a mass membership, which just surged in because of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and on the other hand, it's clearly been exaggerated in the media, you know, comparing Jeremy Corbyn to, you know, Hitler or the Labour Party wanting to open up Auschwitz is is obviously absurd. It's disgusting as well, I personally think. So yeah, it's a strange one. But anyway, Jeremy Corbyn, on the day of the HRC report, which is not a perfect body, but I thought the report he released, it was actually it was pretty, I thought it was okay. Uh, he says, I accept all the recommendations of the report, but I, you know, I'm not so sure about this and this. That saw him suspended within an hour. Uh, And that's why he's been suspended, even though he wants all the recommendations to be implemented. And people since then have basically said he shouldn't be suspended. By the way, he was then brought, he was readmitted back into the party. His suspension was dropped after an NEC subcommittee said he hadn't broken any rules. So he was allowed back in the party. But then Keir Starmer says, well, he can't be an MP. So he, he would, it's something called withdrawing the whip. So he's a Labour Party member, but he's technically not a Labour MP. Any member or any local party, and I know the Democratic Party doesn't have these, Labour Party has local parties in each constituency. Any constituency Labour Party, which says that Jeremy Corbyn should be given the whip back, will be, uh, well, basically the, 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 the meeting shouldn't happen, and anybody responsible for it will be suspended. Members saying this will be suspended. Wow. So, so clearly these are quite big infringements on, on freedom of speech, freedom of association, just saying that somebody should be readmitted to the parliamentary party when they've they've been readmitted as a member. And increasingly, it does look like Starmer's kind of run out of road here. So 100 parties have voted for this. His personal approval ratings are tanking. People are leaving. Uh, trade unions have cut funding to the party. So I think initially, about six weeks ago, they thought this will make us look strong. Attacking the left always plays well with the national media, but it's costing them money. And actually, in terms of Keir Starmer's personal ratings, they're doing very badly as a result. I mean, all I see here is the left breaking up. When 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 Labour's pulling out because of some 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 whatever uh, I don't want to say neoliberal tendencies, but at least playing to the media. Um, it just seems like this was a manufactured debate. Uh, we see, we face something very similar here, which I'll, I'll touch on in a second, but um, a manufactured debate to pit different leftist leaders against each other in which the ultimate 
effect is folks pull out, they get frustrated, they don't want to be a part of the system, they don't receive money. And the Democratic Party um, in 2017, <laughs> you said that there, there are all these uh, folks who, who already left the Labor Party were threatening to leave. Alan Dershowitz famously, uh, you know, great symbol of, of the left, Alan Dershowitz, the, the lawyer um, who was defending Donald Trump, just recently, uh, he was on air on CNN in 2017 during the DNC chairs race, the Democratic National Committee's chairs race, attacking Keith Ellison for being anti-Semitic. Uh, Keith mm. Ellison is is Muslim and saying, I'm going to leave the party. And he got all these, you know, op-eds published everywhere. Alan Dershowitz is leaving the party. Good, good. let it hit you on the way, you know, out. Nobody aligns <laughs> with Alan Dershowitz's mm. insane politics, let alone his personal um, choices. But it, it, the, 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 the messaging was so... Qu- I mean, that's not something new. The, the messaging from from the Tories and the neoliberals here uh, obviously echo each other when when it's convenient and it works. But I just find it fascinating that um, you know the, the the message seemed to be coordinating at the time. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just that people leave, which obviously they do. You know, people don't want to be called a racist and an anti-Semite, or, you know, an apologist. You know, and, and these things are so overboard. You know, I mean, the Auschwitz thing was just absurd. You know, I think any normal person. James O'Brien, who's a, a, a host on that same radio station called, you know, um, uh, Labour Party members, Holocaust deniers. I mean, this is, I, I, you know, a lot of people say, you know what, I don't need this. And so quite justifiably, right? Um, and that's one part of it. But another part is a lot of people who are nice people and they view themselves as nice people, they just don't want that confrontation. So in this country, in 2018, you know, Labour was under pressure to adopt the IHRA, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, they did. And then there were these nine examples. And, you know, the, the Labour Party said, we're not quite sure about one of them, uh, which relates to Israel. So we, want, we, we, we don't want to adopt that example. We're going to tailor it. And by the way, Kenneth Stern, the gentleman who, who, who formulated the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, said that is entirely permissible because he, he never sort of wants to create this as something which would inform disciplinary processes because it could create problems around freedom of speech, which has been talked about by many people. Kenneth Stern, I think he wrote an article about this for The Guardian. It's the guy that came up with it. It's not some, I'm not saying some sort of contrarian, absurd take. Now, if I say that publicly in, in, in Britain, there'll be people who will say, oh, you're against the IHRA definition, therefore you're anti-Semitic. Well, why? Because you're, 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 def- you're, you're uh, saying that you know, Jewish people can't have a homeland. Well, no, I, I don't support the definition because it doesn't permit the Palestinians to people to have a homeland. So actually, I do take self-recognition and self, uh, self, ideas of self-government and self-determination quite, quite seriously. So yes, the debate's very toxic. And I think you're right. Some people are walking away, but then some people say, oh, just, just accept the IHRA. OK, all these Palestinian activists are saying we shouldn't. But you know what? We can draw a line under this, and of course, that's not how it works. There's never a line drawn drawn under this because people like uh, Alan Dershowitz aren't, aren't 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 having these debates in good faith. Right. It's it's. I mean, so where does the future of the Labour Party go, and and um, how do you build up from here? I, I, we're we're having the same conversations over here right now, um, but I, I'm very curious, especially given the state of Brexit, which I'd love to get your updates on. <laughs> mm. Well, for us, it's a bit different to you guys. I mean, you guys have. The, you know, you have primaries, which is how you've got all these great people into the Democratic Party. And we don't have that. So, you know, America and Britain have first past the post systems, which are deeply undemocratic, but at least you have primaries. So whether it's the Tea Party with the Republicans, whether it's the left within or the progressives within the Democratic Party, these organizations can renew themselves, right? Not necessarily for better, like with the Tea Party, but, but they can. The establishment of those parties can be undermined. We, we don't have primaries in this country. And so actually, I think it's very possible that the Labour Party is a far more inert, unresponsive organization than the Democratic Party. Hmm. It, it has its own advantages, you know, membership, you know, sort of local membership, uh, you know, far more democratic party in terms of policy formation and so on, but not having primaries is is a big problem. And so I I do think it's possible that the left can't salvage the Labour Party. I don't think that's the case. I think, I think ultimately Keir Starmer's project comes up on the rocks in probably six months to a year because they have no money. The polling isn't great. And realistically they can't win in 2024. And to, to save things, they need to get the left, not to save as in to win, as in to not be decimated. They need the biggest possible coalition going into the next election, which includes the left. So I, I don't think it's all, all bad news for the left. 
But it's a strange moment where you've got the Parliamentary Labour Party, 200 MPs, who I personally think many of those MPs are to the right of the public at large. I think it's much like, you know, with Democratic senators. But the difference being we can't really shake them up like shake them up like you guys can. I know it's not easy even for you guys, but at least it's possible. Uh, and that's a bit different for us. So I think the Labour Party will change, but it's, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take 10, 15 years, I think. Oy. And, and in terms of um, the, the trade unions uh, who have pulled out, those those who have pulled out, and I'm not sure how many remain, I mean, is there a way of pressuring or working with the unions, um, the traditional labor, not the Labor Party, mm-hmm. uh, to, to pressure more immediate change and, and shift? I mean, it, what are the mechanisms of, like, what are the pressure points? So no union has, has yet to pull out, That's just to be clear. So uh, Unite, the second large union in the country, have cut funding to labor. Got it. Uh, they may be cutting more funding, which is significant because I believe they gave Labour something like nine million pounds last year, uh, which is a lot of money by the by the standards yeah. of British politics. Oh no, absolutely. Um, Unison is the largest union in the country. It's a right wing union. The leadership's right wing. It's had the same leader for twenty years. He's kind of like the uh, I like you know you know Lukashenko in Belarus. This is kind of Dave Prentice and Unison as the sort of Lukashenko of of the union movement in this country, and the GMB, which is also a right wing union. I don't think they're particularly smart unions. I don't think the leaderships are particularly smart. Uh, uh, so they're they're backing Starmer, but then you've got yeah, Unite have uh, reduced funds. The CWU, which is the post postal workers union, are talking about doing the same thing. The FBU, which is the fire brigades union, are, are talking about the same thing. The bakers union is talking about leaving. And of the sort of 10 unions, nine unions, seven think Jeremy Corbyn should be reinstated. So it's, it's quite clear that the mass of the, the labor movement wow. thinks he should be reinstated. But that's not, it's not universal. If it was universal, it, w- it, w- it would have happened by now. So do they have leverage? They have an immense amount of leverage because Keir Starmer's pitch was they can go and we'll get in these really high-value donors instead to give us loads of money. And what's happened is Unite have cut their funds. Members have left. And, of course, members are a great source of funds. About 100,000, we think around 100,000 people have left out of a party of 600,000 people. Wow. And then all they've got from private donors since Starmer became leader is about 200,000 pounds. Um, which is kind of explicable. You know, there's, there's no election till 2024 and you have COVID. And so Labour, if the next six months are like the last six months, Labour all of a sudden don't really have much money. And so actually, you know, members and the unions in that regard have a great deal of leverage, I think. Uh, and I mean, is, is there talk of another party, a leftist party growing out of this? Uh, no, because again, because of our electoral system, you know, it, it there is talk of it, but I think it's idle chatter. I don't think it will go anywhere. I, I, I think where there are dis- emerging discussions around a different kind of pole of attraction for the left, that's long been true in Scotland, of course. Scottish Labour have died effectively since 2015. For your audience out there, Scotland was historically one of the heartlands of Labour, as was South Wales, as was the North East, as was London. Scotland disappears in 2015. You know, I think the SNP win 54 or 57 seats in Scotland. It becomes a one-party state. You know, Labour lose 40 MPs in Scotland overnight. And it's very possible that something similar now happens in Wales. I don't think it's, I don't think it's guaranteed because Welsh nationalism is a bit different to Scottish nationalism. Historically, Welsh nationalism is a linguistic nationalism, um, which is if Welsh nationalists spoke Welsh. And of course, if you don't, then you're not necessarily a Welsh nationalist. That's gradually changing. Uh, so it's very possible that what happened to, to Labour in Scotland happens in the south of Wales. You know, people are talking about the Red Wall in England. I actually think its, it's seats in South Wales are very, very vulnerable. You've got a, a London former barrister, ultra-Remainer, talking about, you know, the IHRA definition <clears throat> being adopted by universe. What, what are viewed as quite sort of marginal topics for most people, whether you agree with them or not. And I think that that could be where there's a, a different sort of political shift. I think the English left as a result is going to have to kind of recalibrate. But no, that, that's not going to mean a new political party in England because, because our electoral system would mean, I think, it would, necessar- yeah, it would necessarily fail, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the state of Brexit and, and these trade deals and uh, <laughs> in the midst of COVID, uh, how your government is responding to this crisis. Um, you know, obviously, it's very different than, than the rest of the EU. But can you kind of give us a little bit of an update on what's happening? Yeah, I mean, 
Britain is is uh, is is doing almost as badly as the United States. Uh, you know, there's a great piece by Pankaj Mishra um, in the London Review of Books about the end of Anglo-America. And I think that's right. I think that's what this pandemic has done. It's really destroyed a certain idea of of, of the nation and of, of capitalism, that Anglo-American model. I think it's dead. There are. It's important to say there are other parts of the European Union which have also done very badly. Spain, Italy, France. The outstanding country of the large countries is Germany. Uh, and I think Germany sort of sits somewhere between the EU and the East Asian countries, which have just been formidable. Um, Germany... Denmark, Norway have done incredibly well. Britain has done very poorly. I mean, Britain has, has, I think, easily been the worst performer in the whole of the European Union. What's interesting, though, of course, is that the Tory party is still leading in the polls. Um, You know, there's very few, there's there's maybe been two polls since March where Labour are neck and neck. But in many polls, the Tories are kind of three, four points ahead. Um, and of course, people talk about shy Tories or shy Republicans. Actually, that tends to underestimate the lead they might have. So it's strange. People understand there's been a sort of cataclysmic response from government, but that hasn't really led to a necessarily left analysis of what next. And that's that's partly explained. You can't attack the left for this necessarily. That's partially explicable by, by the fact that the Conservatives have in some elements, run a sort of quasi-socialist response to this. So the public health care response has been terrible, like America's, but when it came to the economic response, it was much better. You know, guaranteeing people furlough, which is payments to not work up to 80% of your income with a ceiling of £2,500 a month. Uh, And many people have been on that this year. It's carrying through till March um, we've had all kinds of other benefits temporarily increased. So it's been handled terribly, but the government in the process then ran, I think, a deficit this year. We're running a deficit of like 400 billion, you know, which is like two and a half times what it was in 2009. It's just extraordinary. And so, you know, when the government is just being so generous with money, you know, you can kind of understand why, why people would still be backing them you know the Tories the Tories are remaining popular in some places because they aren't really behaving like Tories uh, but, the, but, the, but the public health response has, has been so dreadful you would have expected it to I think may, have made a bigger dent into their sort of popularity it hasn't that said you know the vaccine came at just the right time I think if we had another six months of this I I think I think there would have been major problems for them but you're talking about this deficit I mean how is that going to play out uh, in the midst of 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 I guess these trade deals with the rest of the EU. I mean, is does that play a role at all in in trying to make up for the deficit? It's a strange one. You know, we've never really been here before. Um, Britain's sort of uh, its national debt to its GDP ratio. This doesn't really matter for America because, of course, it can just print off dollars and it's the world's reserve currency. Britain, but it's can't also do that. the thing that all the Republicans they only care about. So. Yeah, bizarrely, you know. If, if there's a country on earth which can just keep on printing money, it's the United States. You know, it probably can. Um, in Britain, it's, it's slightly different, obviously, because we're not, you know, we don't have a, this imperial army that can maintain, uh, you know, a number of regimes in our favour that buy dollars when we want them to buy them and so on, or buy our products when we want to sell them. Uh, so it, it's going to be a major problem. But Britain has a number of sort of economic shortcomings and it's had them for a very long time. So one is, of course, it's not exporting much. It hasn't exported for a very long time. And it made up for those exports because it was it was an oil exporter, had North Sea oil. That's now going. And of course, because of the City of London, which counted effectively as um, as exports. But you know, it sounds strange, but there were exports of services. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and that's kind of now it's weakened. And so really the, the British economic model, the Thatcherite economic model has been on life support since 2008. And what's clear is it isn't really going to be replaced by anything particularly good. I mean, it may, it may carry on like a zombie for another 10 years. I, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought it would last this long. It has, but we're not going to see sort of rising growth. And so you've got a strange mix of weak exports, a high deficit, high public debt, low growth, you know, historically, that's not a very good recipe. At the same time, we've got falling wages, we've got falling home ownership. And so you see this polarization in this country in particular, around asset wealth. So people who own houses in this country, they've had a mortgage holiday for some people have had a mortgage holiday for three months for six months, right? 
Uh, and actually the crisis, this has been good for them. You know, I was speaking to a guy who was a jeweler um, and he said, well, I don't pay rent on this building. The price of gold has shot up uh, and I've been able to put my staff on furlough and I've just been working myself. And he said, I, I've probably, he said, I've probably made money. But of course, if wow. you're, yeah, but if you're a renter, if you're a renter, because of right. course gold prices were crazy a few months ago, but if you're a renter and you lose your job, you're, you're really screwed. And so people who had assets, people who were homeowners were affected by this crisis very, very differently. And it's important to say, when you look at Labour's support base in the last election, even though they lost, you know, they were winning amongst under 45s and amongst renters. And those are the people that are still being crushed by this. And, you know, is there, is there 40% of Britain which owns a home outright, has paid the mortgage or is paying the mortgage, uh, is relatively insulated from these things, maybe they've retired, you know? Right. Uh, is that enough for the Tories to win? I think it probably is. You know, that's the thing. L- Labour won a majority of the working age population in t- 2019, and they got hammered. Uh, and that's, a, that's an important question for us all to think about, you know, within ageing societies, and particularly because in both the US and the UK, more so here, I think, younger people are just less likely to vote. And just before we wrap up, is there rent relief? Pa- I mean, is this because there are no rent relief packages or there's a moratorium? A temporary moratorium was used until March and folks are going to own thousands of dollars, maybe in some cases, much, much, much more. Is that what this yeah, is about? Yeah, so, so there's a mortgage holiday. Uh, if you own a house, you don't have to pay the mortgage or you have to agree it with your bank, but all the banks are doing it because the government's instructed them to effectively do that. You have a moratorium on mortgage payments, but if you're renting, you don't have a moratorium. And so, so very similar to here. Yeah, yeah. in many and states so, at least. Yeah, so there was a moratorium on on on, on people kicking out tenants. Uh, I think that's now expired. But effectively, you could have a situation where the landlord doesn't have to pay the rent, and yet they can still demand rent from their tenants. Clearly, it's a very unfair system. But you know, the Labour Party, being what it is now, it's lost, lost that left leadership. It, it doesn't want to get involved. You know, it's very happy for basically a lot of people to be crushed this year and kind of drift along which was the strategy it was doing okay of course until the the jeremy corbyn farrago and, and now things are changing uh and like i said the next couple of months like the last couple of months you know i think there'll be mounting pressure on keir starmer i, I think so too i think we're, we're i mean i don't know when the numbers are going to kick in for you but tens of millions of people are are going to be evicted the courts are going to be jammed up not have access to legal services there aren't going to be enough uh attorneys who are willing to provide those free legal services we have a major major homeless crisis in this country very soon on top of all the money that uh these landlords who supposedly care so much uh you know they're gonna be able to write off and have a you know they're 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 that it's 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 very similar to the housing crisis except <laughs> except no one has anywhere to go um aaron bassani so fascinating. Thank you so much for spending uh, your evening with us out there. My pleasure. I'd love to have you back on soon to get more updates, but um, you know, best of luck to you guys across the pond. Best of luck to you, Namiki. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. We will be right back in two seconds with Akila Lacey and Napoleon de Legend. If you aren't already doing so, make sure to click that subscribe button and smash that like button and get in the chat. We're pretty far into the show for this, but uh, you got to make sure to do that because that's how the show keeps going. That's how we we catch up to Navarra Media and so many other folks like Sam Cedar, who's about to hit a million. Uh, and of course, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. This is the time to indoctrinate your family. Send them over here for as low as $5 a month. For those of them who just don't want to pay MSNBC cable news anymore, you know, we're, 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 we've got a Rachel Maddow challenger level. So definitely check that out. You get extra content every single day. You get the show and we have swag. We'll be right back in two seconds. Two seconds. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Akila Lacey is a politics reporter at The Intercept. And of course, Napoleon the Legend is back from hiatus, vacation. He is a an Afrobeat hip-hop artist, and he is one of our favorite activists, uh, regular and leftist media. All right, guys, uh, thanks for sticking around. We had some tech issues at the top, so everything's a little bit delayed. But let's roll with this. We have people across this country who um, are, uh, are potentially about to face evictions. We're not even at the worst point yet. And mothers and families are resorting to providing food for their families by stealing food. 
which I don't even like using that word steal, but I don't, we, we, we are rarely in this state. Um, this is a real crisis and it's, and let's just roll the clip. We may get there, Joe. I mean, Democrats are looking around and, and frankly, some of the centrist Republicans they're negotiating with are saying there are state and local jurisdictions everywhere that really need help. You have transit systems that are on the verge of collapsing. I mean, even just here in Washington, they're talking about, you know, completely slashing, cutting uh, the metro system that serves uh, downtown D.C. Republicans argue that this is a problem that's mostly experienced in blue states and blue cities. Uh, but I think centrists in, in both parties are looking around and saying, no, actually, I mean, you remember those Michigan Republicans came to Washington uh, to try and talk to Trump, uh, President Trump, about the election. And instead, they pled with him, please send us money to help shore up our finances. This is, uh, you know, a problem that is affecting everyone. And frankly, there's more agreement on it. They seem to have struck a deal on state and local funding in that bipartisan group. So that means liability has always been the, the stickier piece of this. And, you know, why is that? There are a lot of interest groups, businesses, trial lawyers, obviously. But Think about if you're a worker, I mean, there have already been lawsuits around that. There was a meat pack packing plant in Iowa, for example, where people were ordered to go to work uh, in the beginning of the outbreak. And a lot of people got sick. A lot of people died. Okay, so uh, Democrats are looking. <laughs> All right. I mean, I, what I find so interesting about this clip is is she identifies the crisis and she identifies what's standing in, in the way of of dealing with the crisis. Um, Akila, you've been reporting quite a bit on this, um, just in, in general, the crisis. But... <laughs> How is it? What is it that's happening right now with the Democratic leadership? They're frozen. I mean, how can you not? I, you look back to even the Bush era, Nixon 60s, you had a Democratic Party that was willing to take on the Republicans in big interest, and they're just frozen. What's going on? Is there something missing that we're not seeing internally in, in, in Washington? Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of what they just mentioned in that piece, which is really important, is that um, the the issue at stake right now for passing another relief package is coming down to uh, McConnell wanting to include this provision that would shield corporations from any sort of lawsuit um, from workers who, who get sick with COVID, you know, being forced to go into work. And they are Put, they pushed Democrats basically to say that they would be okay with giving up state and local aid um, in order to get, you know, to get some some wiggle room on on the liability thing. So um, I, I don't and and you know we saw we've we've seen Democrats waffling on this. We've they haven't had a sense of urgency, you know, to pass another relief bill. Um, for, you know, it's been like over 250 days um, and. Instead of of taking stock of what they could have done and where they could have pushed back harder on Republicans, um, they've spent the last several months kind of blaming each other for for what, you know, a poor showing in November rather than looking at like, OK, well, actually, we haven't done anything for our constituents in, in two thirds of the year and people are literally dying. So um, I, I don't think it's necessarily that they're missing something, but that they don't there's no political will at the at the levels of leadership to stand up to Republicans where you know, it's coming from from up from below in the party and from from the from the left wing, like people that are saying, you know, we're not going to stand for this kind of stuff. But again, they don't have leverage to get anything done. Um, so I think it's it's more of a more of the same from from leaders who don't have they don't ha they don't feel accountable to their constituents. Nancy Pelosi is not going to lose an election anytime soon. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't it's it's just devastating. Yeah. It's it's so interesting because um, as much as I want to stay away from this debate, I, I, I really want to come at, come at it from the perspective of why this debate is relevant right now. This whole Jimmy Dore debate over should we, I mean, his he for those of you guys who don't know, uh, Jimmy Dore got into a Twitter exchange and he's been championing uh, taking on AOC and the squad and pushing Medicare for all uh, to a vote uh, in order to withhold their vote in supporting Nancy Pelosi as speaker, um, as leader of the party. And I think what that whole debate, and there's there's so many different angles of this debate, you know, what his intentions are, et cetera. I think what's so fascinating about that, though, is what he's tapping into is, and, and by growing um, growing his support of, of like pressuring the squad, essentially, is that he's tapping into Americans who are feeling exasperated and angry that leadership is not stepping up. 
And what he's highlighting is exactly what Akilah just said, which is that the squad only, I mean, they're in an institution. They only have so much power and where and why they use their voice at different times. There could be pushback that could actually limit their ability to use their voice. So Napoleon, I mean, you've, you know, you're an activist, you're obviously an artist. How, how do you see the movement um, effectively pressuring where are the pressure points? How do we actually pressure our lawmakers right now to actually stepping up to this crisis? I mean, uh, we have to keep we have we have to keep speaking about it and be speaking up and 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 really, I mean, the, the, the sense of urgency and the the the, the dire uh, of this of this um, whole situation. I mean, I, I'm seeing you know food lines like around Brooklyn where people in cars waiting for food. I've never seen that you know in my life since since, since I've been in, in these parts of the United States, and I think that. Uh, we we need to really I mean like like uh, Akilah said no we haven't gotten anything from them you know like the, the stimulus bill even if it does happen to come it's gonna be it's gonna be perceived as being too late even though people are gonna be happy that they, they have some sort of help it's still gonna be perceived as being too late because I don't know for whatever reason Nancy Pelosi didn't want to do it before the elections or whatever but I think uh, it, it's important that. I mean, us in the left and us as progressives have to notify a message and, and keep, you know, pushing whoever whoever we support to, to keep speaking up and, and to say that this stimulus bill is, is do or die. It's literally do or die for people. Because if people are starving, people are in the street, the pandemic is getting worse. And what do we have left? We have no country left. If, every, if, if like the majority of us are like struggling to get the basic necessities. And it's, you know, the, in New York, for instance, and probably in several other states, we're very likely to go into a lockdown uh, in the coming days or even weeks. Simultaneously, there is an eviction moratorium that is about to expire, potentially. Um, it is on the table to extend it, of course. But it, how are people going to lock down if they're in lines for food and don't have a home? Akila, like, are you 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 call lawmakers do they get it do they psychologically understand what's happening uh some of them do um frankly i don't think so. i think some of them don't care um to be completely honest with you like they're democrats just, yes yeah and 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 republicans i mean i think it's right yeah but i think some of them yeah some of them don't think that they uh, it's you know it's sad to see kind of like the the development of this over time in Congress, but like the there's sort of like a lack of morale on what Democrats think matters to to voters from a like listening to this consultant class over the last several election cycles, but also like b having the last four years of Trump where basically they could get away with not doing anything because they're like, oh, well, we can't do anything. So instead of that pushing them to try to be better legislators or better representatives, they've, you know, gone more into this this mood of like, okay, well, like, nothing's going to pass the Senate. So like, we don't, what, like, what do you want us to do? And it's like, you, it may, it's crazy making, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a theory and I know this is like a little conspiratorial, but it, it's not like it, they have Democrats haven't done this before. I don't think they want to win the Senate. I think they love being able to continue to take their special interest money and play the good guy up against the bad guy who is Mitch McConnell, who constantly holds things up. Um, you mentioned, you know, this this new norm. Uh, Bill Barr is out of the White House right now. And according to, to progressives, of course, uh, we, we won't miss him. But in his resignation letter, he, he celebrates Trump's punitive immigration policy and appointment of right-wing judges to the courts. So the legacy of Bill Barr will continue. But I'm really concerned personally just that this is our new norm. And we're not going to fix these problems. It's just like like the, the Biden administration's stasis is Obama era 2009, but that's not where we are. That's not the stasis right now and where he has to build back better. Uh, Napoleon, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think um, they're going to immediately have to address all these issues and, and, and work on, on undoing the damage that uh, William Barr has done. I mean, I haven't follow uh you know um attorney generals for that long but the like the way he was acting i i i you know even jess sessions who is a as as a horrible person had at least the tact to recuse himself during the investigations 
And well, William Barr, he just went all out for Trump, and he was basically Trump's personal lawyer. And I, I don't know that they, they, they had this. This has to change because it, it undermines the confidence of people with just overall governance when when people just uh, abuse their power because that's all that was going on under William Barr's uh, you know uh, state. There's talk of Andrew Cuomo uh, being the AG. Akila, do you, I mean, I'd love to hear your response just to that. But also, is do you think that Andrew Cuomo? <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. Do you think that Andrew Cuomo uh, will be the, the the ambassador for fair democracy and be the people's lawyer? Um, yeah, I think no. Um, I <laughs> We had a sort of like a, a period earlier in the pandemic where everyone had goo goo eyes for Cuomo for some reason while he was simultaneously like threatening to cut the education budget and, you know, just doing basically nothing. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's gotten a book out of the pandemic. He's, you know, he's doing, he seems to be doing well and, um, you know, being coming more and more outspoken about, um, you know, whatever the topic of the Blasio. day is. But yeah, I don't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's, no, I don't, I, I would be surprised if he ends up getting into, getting into the cabinet. But um, another thing, just going back to what Napoleon said, like the, the, the situation and, and what you mentioned about the stasis in the Biden administration, he told reporters yesterday, which something, you know, something that he thought was like a good uh, takeaway from this this uh, background call that he had with Republican senators that they told him that, you know, he's going to have to wait six to eight months and then eventually, you know, they'll work with him, which, you know, you have a situation where the president elect thinks that at a time when like half of the House Republicans <laughs> came out trying to up to overturn the election results, like what was that last week? And then you have him coming out and like the administration is trying to create positions to reach out to Republicans. They're still in this this place where we're we're reacting to the GOP, even though he is the incoming president, instead of saying like, oh, like, actually, we're going to run the show now. Like he's telling his supporters to be grateful that Republicans are going to give them, you know, six to eight months and then start start working when actually that's the legis that's the, the legislative session that they would need to be active within before it becomes, you know, we're back into another election cycle. So that was really disheartening to see yesterday and just goes to show that, like, I don't really think they have any sort of plan for taking on the GOP. They just are happy that they got in and they're going to say they're just going to they're going to go in and do nothing basically and and i'm like was one more makes me more furious about this is this is the assumption that we don't win the senate so is he just not going to try to win those two seats or one seat or whatever uh in georgia right now i mean if I guess I'm really confused over whether or not biden wants to be an fdr like president or if biden is just going to do what he knows so well which is play the game and then like use republicans as 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 the as to blame i mean napoleon like i, I think he's gonna laugh. <laughs> i mean i think i think he's just gonna be biden that's what he's been doing uh his whole career and he's a de facto de republican with a you know with a democrat disguise and uh i i, I don't expect him to to to, to i think like uh, Achille like kind of implied it. they're gonna kind of come in they got the power they're gonna wing it and uh to your point um you know, Mickey, maybe they they don't care about winning that much because they they it, it'll give them cover for them not to make any type of progress just blaming everything on the republicans instead of really trying to push for actual change and actual material gains for the people what do you think akila i mean i don't want to say that they don't want to win the senate but i do think that it's probably not at the top of their prior list of priorities right now i think part of that is because they don't think that it's going to happen just you know, based on what, how Georgia went, even though, you know, that would be counterintuitive. Like if Biden won the state for the first time in, in you know, several decades, then it would stand to reason that, um, you know, they would have a good chance right now. But I think also the tenor of the race down there is like, it's kind of like a, you know, um, like a microcosm of all, you know, the, the election cycle that we just had. You, you're, you have people, um, you know, running ads saying that they want they want their anti-police and running at like pushing Raphael Warnock on uh, into like, you know, accusing him of being anti-Semitic when he's not even running on anything related to Israel policy. Um, there's there's just we're like rehashing the same fights over and over again. So my sense is that national Democrats are kind of like okay, well, like, we'll, we'll do what we can. Like, we're going to, you know, do whatever basic amount of fundraising we would do, but we're there. That's not, it doesn't seem like that's a priority right now. Um, they, they're much more concerned about, um, you know, putting together the, the cabinet positions and, um, fielding criticism from, uh, <laughs> from the left, uh, on those, on those picks right now. 
Um, I'm very curious if Obama is going to step up and, and go out there and campaign for them. I mean, I feel like that's always an indication of how much they really care. Mm. We will see. Akila Lacey writes for The Intercept. Go check out our work. And Napoleon DeLegend, uh, who has, has, you have a new album out. Is it sold out? It's still? Uh, the physical copies are sold out. Yes. Digitals don't sell out, so go ahead and get it. <laughs> so where can people check it out? Uh, you, you, you can check it out on my website. Uh, which is? We'll put it in the Legend.com. Very well done. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, there's there's no shortage of, of crises to discuss. So I'm sure next time we'll have a whole other batch. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Namiki. All right. We have some shout outs. I know from the top of uh, my head that Harvey K is in the chat. Thank you to Harvey K, Professor Harvey K, also a frequent guest of the show. I believe he's going to be on Thursday. You guys are free to leave if you need to go. Um, uh, Professor Harvey K will be on on Thursday, and we are going to talk about, I'm just throwing it out right now, uh, we're going to talk about Biden, like, who is he the, like, who is he most similar to? Is he, is he like a Johnson character? Is he in the FDR? Or is he just going to be his own man? Because I think that's going to help us, if we reflect on history, help us understand where we're going and if there's any way to pressure any of these leaders internally right now, which I think really is the debate that folks are having right now over this whole, uh, do we pressure the squad to take Medicare for all to the floor and potentially lose, most likely lose, um, and what happens as a result? They lose their committee positions. They lose you know, their ability to be called on in a hearing. I mean, these are consequential issues. All right. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska, of course, sending love. He says, went through the ice because he was walking on thin ice when he called into the majority report. And I was like, is he actually on thin ice? So he says, went through uh, ice. I'm wet and cold, but the cow is with her calf now. So winning. Uh, love winter. Here is indoctrination dollars or cold brood fun. Thank you so much, guys. And thank you, Fire uh, Prairie Fire Kowalski. Al Walski, loving your stalwart commitment to the plain truth as opposed to clever purveyors of disinformation, otherwise known as damn lies. Yeah, guys, um, I'm going to be pushing harder on this. There is a business model here. And if you want to become famous and make a lot of money, it is really easy to tap into easy uh, cheap fights and arguments and call people out as being uh, shills or sold out. And all I have to say is, you know, from my own perspective, I've, I, I like to look at hosts and say, okay, you, you know, you're critical and you're calling everybody else a shill. Have you actually done anything in movement politics that you're so, you're such a strategist on? Have you ever organized in your backyard? Have you ever taken on the DNC? Have you ever knocked on doors before or made phone calls? I'm not saying you need to have that experience to have an opinion, but if you're going to call everybody else who has done that work a shill, it takes a lot of courage to take on Democratic leaders and to be smeared in the press. And there is no doubt that the, the squad is under tremendous pressure from every single angle. You know, they have they've got death threats in regularly because they're posted on Fox News. They have the neoliberals going after them and placing smear pieces on them. And then to have the left, certain members of the left go after them. I don't think that's how we win. I think we win through solidarity and really recognizing and being human with each other. As Michael Brooks so famously said, be ruthless to institutions, ruthless to institutions and kind to humans, right? That is the line. You have to be kind to humans. Uh, M. Toussaint, thanks, Nomi Key does not sound, does not open the Jimmy door. Yeah, the Nomi Key does not open. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, I, I didn't get the emojis. The Nomi Key, it's an emoji, does not open the Jimmy door. It's an emoji. Very clever. All right. Big thank you to Mini Doctors for working the algorithms and huge, huge, huge thanks to Bob and our new mod orb for keeping the chat room troll free. Can you keep my Twitter page troll free too? Uh, I'm getting ready for it. All right, guys. Be well. Tomorrow we have a great show. Definitely check us out at 3 p.m. Eastern uh, and join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. The link is right there. Go check it out.